I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, we are going to have my favorite, excuse me, my favorite non-martyred martyr. <laughs> and yes, I'm serious about this. So let's uh, move along. We have talked for the last couple of weeks about, you know, the Inquisition and what a show and how you wish in that they go away. And there you go. There's your Mel Brooks for the day. But that was an important setup because, <clears throat> excuse me. It allows you to see the world that the Reformation and the High Middle Ages are coming into. So let's look at Europe of the High Middle Ages, because this is important. Europe after 1000, so you're talking again, this is the fun thing about history, just always remember this. We live moment to moment, and we understand time in terms of days and weeks and months and things like that, but when we talk historically... We are smushing decades into single declarations, and so inevitably stuff gets glossed over, stuff gets left out. So when we talk about the High Middle Ages, you're talking about 1,000 or 1,100 to 1,500, somewhere in that ballpark. You know, there's, there's always buffers on each side. So we're talking about a lot of things going on that we're just not even going to spend any time on whatsoever simply because we never get done. So... The Europe, the landscape of Europe in the High Middle Ages, you're talking about a place that there are, on one end of the spectrum, there are inquisitions, crushing thought and dissent in trying to impose a hierarchical system. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have the birth of the university system. You have the learning of the monasteries, uh, flourishing and coming to full flower in full-blown colleges and universities, people getting bachelor's and master's degrees and doctorates in all various manner and field of study. The seedbed of the Renaissance will be in this, this understanding. You also are entering into the height, really, of historical papal excess. We've talked about this before, where the Pope is both a spiritual leader and a secular leader due to his standing in Rome, because Italy is not going to become Italy until late 19th century, and so the divisions are very much feudal for a very long time, and the Pope occupies some of that feudal standing. You are also seeing the birth and flower of humanism. Now, when you talk history, you can't hear medieval humanism and think what you think now. When you think modern humanism, you're thinking a secular mindset only concerned with the rational thought and what can be learned from it. Now, that comes from this medieval humanism, but that's a corruption of it. Medieval humanism is grounded in a renewed interest in the classics. So a discovering of Homer and Cicero and the Greeks and the Roman thought processes, the, the ancient philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, all of these things coming back, coming back into vogue is not a fair way of saying saying this, but coming back into the forefront of thought where 
seeing the world through a larger lens is becoming the norm for the educated and for the thinking. Now, in the religious realm, humanism has a place. This leads to a renewal in an understandings of Hebrew and Greek, which by in turn leads to a renewed interest in Bible reading and translation, seeing the understandings, which also, by the way, leads to a rebirth and a renewal in hermeneutics, studying Scripture in context, not according to the dictates of scholasticism, not according to the dictates of papal decree, but according to the understanding of Scripture. What do these words mean? mean? What does that meaning then convey? And how do we communicate that in a native language for a people who do not read Greek and Hebrew? So that's the world we're coming into. That is the world that is going to give birth to the Renaissance, to the Reformation, give birth to the Enlightenment, and everything you see coming later on in the 19th and 20th centuries finds their find their infancy in this humanistic idea, this understanding of learning and thinking both philosophically and contextually in a religious system. Now, with that, my favorite non-martyr martyr, John Wycliffe. And by the way, fun historical note, you want to talk about the non-standardization of things because remember, we are still pre-printing press here at the end of the 14th century with uh, Wycliffe here. We have, and I never remember the exact number, it's 9, 11, or 13. I want to say it's 13. So don't quote me on that. You can go dig it up yourself. But we have somewhere in that ballpark of one of those numbers. That's how many different spellings of John Wycliffe's name we have in his own handwriting. <laughs> Just for any of you that are terrible spellers or despise, you know, trying to learn how to spell new words, realize that John Wycliffe lived in a world where he spelled his own name basically a dozen different ways, depending on how he felt that day, simply because there wasn't a standardization of language because there wasn't a printing press. Most spelling was phonetic by nature. So, Fun little note, has nothing to do with anything, but give you a little a little feather in your cap, something to appreciate if you like little tidbits of knowledge. So who is this Wycliffe? Well, he was a student and later on a professor, and a rather beloved professor actually, at Oxford University. Yes, that Oxford. That's how long it's been around. Realize um, when you talk about British um, universities, those, those things have been around for like a thousand years. He had degrees and was a professor of scholastic philosophy and theology. So you're talking about scripture as well as classical thought, understanding the world from a, the world from a philosophical point of view. He was also a renowned debater. You did not want to get into an argument with Wycliffe. He would tie you in knots. He was smarter than you, he knew more than you, and he knew how to express himself. He was also one of the brightest lights of what we call the pre-Reformation, what has been known historically as the morning star of the Reformation, the one who really gave credence to a lot of the outskirt reform movements and gave them a theological and scholastic backing. He gave them legitimacy. Now, when we talk about reformers, what are we reforming? What, did, what were some of the things Wycliffe held to? Well, he actually denied the Eucharist. The understanding in Roman Catholic theology that when the priest does the voodoo that he do so well, that the actual uh, blood and body of Christ are present in the wine and the bread. He denied this. You're already starting to see that move towards a memorial view. 
He was against papal authority in that he did not think and could find no biblical or real historical warrant for the Petrine succession, that is the Pope being the successor of Peter, or any historical credence to the idea that Peter as Bishop of Rome was any more thought of than any of the other bishops. That also denied the key authority where the church held the power of binding and loosing. That's actually a grammatical argument when you actually read Matthew in context. He held to the sufficiency of Scripture as the the rule for life. Uh, he believed that works did not add unto salvation, meaning that your good works are a fruit of salvation, a proof of salvation, not a contribution to salvation. And he didn't think churches should have prisons, which, you know, like kind of sounds like a duh to you and me, but this is a different world. This time period is the merging of the sacred and the secular. And I've always pointed out, anytime you merge sacred and secular, it is the sacred that suffers. And this is an example. Churches routinely had prisons. Bishops were secular authorities. Now, he trained evangelists. Good old uh, Wycliffe did. Sent them out by way of evangelism through song. They would learn songs and travel about businessmen, shipping merchants, things like that. And they would sing their songs and teach theology. They were called the lollards because of the sounds that you make when you sing. Now, the church just loved this. They thought this was phenomenal. You know, this well-thought-of, scholastic, high-achieving professor and pastor who just, you know, questioned their excesses and their immoralities and their voodoo. They just thought this was phenomenal. You're, uh, you're laughing with me, I know. Uh, Council of Bishops was called in 1377. This is—you want to talk about how corrupt— institutions can become. They've brought Wycliffe forward to charge him with heresy and see if they can get him killed. In order to do that, you have both the church authority, the bishops and the friars and the people like that, and you also have the secular authorities, the dukes and the princes and all of those guys. Well, an argument breaks out because the secular authorities, looking at the list of things that need to be reviewed and seeing Wycliffe as an elder man, I mean, I, I know he was 56, I think, when he died, so at this point he's in his early 50s. But in this world, early 50s, when you've spent your entire life in dusty books and old castles and things like that, you're old. So the secular authorities, following what would be a normal secular uh, judicial tradition, say there's a lot of material to go along with, so you need to sit down. This is going to take a while. Well, in church trials, the accused must stand before his accusers. He must answer the charges and stand. So they literally break out into an argument between the church authorities who want Wycliffe to stand and the secular authorities who want him to sit. Wycliffe sits around. Eventually, one of the secular authorities insults the Bishop of London, which causes a riot in the crowd. The meeting ends before 9 a.m. They got nothing done. Wycliffe just goes home. Uh, later on, the bishops get together, and they're going to condemn him, and they've got all their stuff organized, and they're all set, and they're ready to pass verdict, and they're ready to you know, burn the heretic and all that good stuff. When one of the king's men, one of the princes, or dukes, comes, comes in and says, oh, by the way, the king doesn't want you to take any action and forbid you to do so. And the bishops are all like, oh, nobody expected that. And they literally didn't know what to do, so they just sent Wycliffe home. They didn't know what else to do with it. Um, later, they got together, and they read the charges, and they all agreed that it was time to sentence him, and they kind and were ready to go, and there was a massive earthquake. <laughs> and all the bishops who were ready to convict were like, uh, maybe this is a sign we're doing the wrong thing. And so they went home and didn't convict him again. Wycliffe will actually uh, end up, because of his influence, because of his work at Oxford, he will eventually become a, like I said, pretty beloved professor, teacher, discipler. There are pastors in England 
now well not now but in the in the 13 in the 14th and 15th century who are there because they fell into the teaching of Wycliffe and that's a good thing by the way they he has defenders he has protectors because he is teaching right theology and that theology is flourishing this is the protection of god and why i tell you to be bold you don't always end up dead when you stand on the right side now the reason why i say he's my favorite non-martyr martyr is because he doesn't die for the faith he dies in the faith but 31 years after his death not that anybody's holding a grudge the pope and his councils dig up and exhume the body of Wycliffe and have it burned at the stake, condemned as a heretic, because that'll teach him. That'll show him. That's the corruption that goes on against And By the way, when you look at the world around you, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Wycliffe was faithful. Wycliffe could have been killed multiple times, but he could not turn from the truth because he knew what it was and he had been set free by it. Therefore, he was content, and he taught and he preached, and he wrote, and he taught, and he worked, knowing that no matter how he ended, he would end faithful in God. Christian, there is hope in that because you too can walk in this dark world. You too can trust the work of God and know that no matter how it ends, it ends rightly with you in the kingdom of God. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.